Joining us live on the phone right now, and real quick, he is taking bookings right now, independent promoters. If you want to get an interview with him, serious inquiries only. You can reach him at bookdavari at hotmail.com or via his website at www.shondavari.com. And, yes, there you go. Joining us right now, former WWE superstar, Sean Davari. Sean, how are you doing? Good. How are you guys doing? We're hanging in there, man. I can tell. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, let's dive right in. You know, we all kind of went on the uh, WWE website here in the last two or three days, and we see Booker T released, we see Charmel released, and we see Sean Davari released. And uh, from what I'm hearing, uh, that was you who initiated that. Is that correct? Yeah, actually, um, this whole process has been about six months in the making now. Uh, they approached me about a, redoing my contract, doing a new contract with them, uh, signing on for another three years. And there was a couple of things that I wanted to do within the company that I felt needed to be taken care of uh, before we went ahead and signed that contract. One of them was uh, primarily to be on more of the events, and, and that would more or less be involved moving to Raw, because on SmackDown you have to share all the live events and all the international tours with ECW. So even though it's the same size you know, house show, the same two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour house show, you have two entire locker rooms to choose from talent. So there's really a lot, a lot of guys trying to get on the show, and sometimes guys get rotated in and rotated out. And that was something that I, I wasn't too crazy about personally because I need to be on the road for my own sanity. If I'm home too much, I kind of go stir-crazy. So for my own, like, mental health, it's better that I'm out on the road every single week and, you know, just home just a couple days. That's just kind of how I operate. So from there, we moved me to Raw, which was awesome, and then right away I was on all the house shows, all the international tours, going all over the world, wrestling throughout Africa, Mexico, United States, everywhere. And um, so finally they reapproached me about redoing the contract, and there's a couple things I was looking to do professionally within the company that obviously uh, the creative end of stuff are not in your contract. Your contract is just kind of dollars and cents and you know, black and white issues. Creative is not really a part of it. Right. And when we couldn't come to terms about what would be happening with my character going forward, I just kind of asked uh, separately uh, John Laurinaitis, who's our head of talent relations, and Vince McMahon and Stephanie McMahon, um, if they'd be offended or upset if I just kind of got my release early, didn't resign my contract, and actually get out of my current contract a little early. Right. And they were all really cool with it. They thought it was a very professional deal, and and I think I left with that bridge totally intact. I think I'd be welcome back anytime I wanted to go back. Sounds good, definitely. Now, when you're talking about it from a creative standpoint, I mean, you don't have to go into detail, but where did you kind of see your character going if, if you kind of had your, your way with it? Well, the character had unlimited potential because, you know, obviously there's no formulatic, uh, formula or scientific way of measuring, you know, how much heat uh, a heel has, but... Right. I mean, just judging off of what you can see and what you can hear, you know, I blew the next closest heel to me completely out of the water as far as crowd reaction, and that was with what TV representation I had. If I had even stronger TV representation, who knows if, if that could have been even stronger. And, you know, there was a point in time where our heel reaction was so strong that Vince, you know, had me and Muhammad headline a pay-per-view with, with Hulk Hogan. He had us work with Steve Austin when he was around. Uh, you know, he had... The Undertaker work with us, Chris Jericho, his top, top, you know, jewels in the business, he felt were good to work with us because obviously we had that crowd reaction behind us. Uh, that would be me and Muhammad. And 
when Muhammad left, you know, I still had it. It didn't go anywhere. I had the same response as I did when he was with us, but unfortunately I didn't see myself moving into those situations with those uh, superstars that we could have done big pay-per-view matches with and big long-term stories and programs with. Right. Now, now generally speaking, is creative really approachable at all? I mean, let's say, you know, a mid-card wrestler, you know, someone who's not a John Cena, Triple H type, you know, is creative approachable? I mean, can you go up to him and say, you know, I've got this idea, or is it kind of like, you know, well, this is what we have for you, and, and, and go ahead and run with it? Well, see, the thing is that there's not, like, an exact creative system that I was able to figure out. Sometimes I'd go to a writer that had only been there, you know, two or three days or weeks or something, just a brand, brand new guy that was just there, doesn't even know what talents are Raw, what talents are SmackDown, and they would blow me off as if, you know, sorry, we ain't got time for you. And then on the same token, my whole tenure there, any time I went up to grab Stephanie McMahon, who was head of talent relations, probably the busiest woman in the company, she always made sure to set time aside to talk to me and hear everything I had to say. Even if she had a million things going on, I'd be like, you know, can I bother you for a second? She'd say, sure, and she'd step aside, and we'd have a private one-on-one conversation. So there really was no rhyme or reason as far as why certain things worked. But but like I said, you know, even Vince McMahon, for that matter, I can remember, you know, I, I didn't bug him every single day, but there was at least five or six times throughout my career that I needed a one-on-one conversation with him, and any time I needed it, I got it. So so to say that creative is or is not approachable, that's, that's debatable, because like I said, some guys didn't have the time of day for me, and then the highest guy and highest woman on the totem pole always did. So, yeah, I, I couldn't give you a yes or no black or white answer for that one. Well, Sean, in the wake of the Christian Wall tragedy and the signature pharmacy scandal and Congress getting involved, what's the backstage morale been like? Uh, backstage morale now, I think, is, is just as good as it was before all the stuff happened. I think the Crispin Wall thing was a real kick in the balls at the time because it seemed like everybody was jumping on our back at one time. And then, you know, as it turned out to be, it was just a big media ploy because at that given point in time, there was nothing else going on that was newsworthy. So every single news station, every single newspaper, every single magazine was jumping all over our backs. And now, you know, I dare you to turn on the TV and try and find coverage of Crispin Wall or open up a sports magazine or newspaper and try and find coverage of it. You know, the world has moved on. At that given point in time, it was just a really, really hot thing and kind of a, a dry summer newsworthy where Iraq kind of got stale, Paris Hilton was out of jail. What else is there to talk about? How about this pro wrestling tragedy? And then just everybody jumped on our back at once. But like I said today, you know, you can't, you can't find Kristen Wall coverage anywhere. And, and, you know, now everything I think is back to normal. Right. Now, now let me ask you this. Uh, this is Gary again. Um, as far as, you know, specifically Congress and the investigation, you know, is everybody kind of, you know, on the up and up, they feel, you know, kind of good about it in the sense that, you know, they, they, they're not worried, you know, what, what kind of ramifications a Congress, a Congress influence on the business will have? No, I, I don't think so, because I think um, anything that if there are some sort of strict limitations they decide to levy upon the industry of professional wrestling, you know, the business will be able to work with it and work around it. Some of, the, some of the biggest blows in our industry have been, you know, that original steroid accusation that kind of brought down the Hulk Hogan era, era, and then now, you know, in one given swoop, the WWE lost Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, and Mick Foley kind of in like one summer. And, you know, these are all major, major blows to pro wrestling, but, you know, they, they still overcome it because a professional wrestling fan 
is not going to care what the outside world thinks of our business or what the outside world wants to do with us. So, you know, I don't think anything like that would really affect us majorly, at, at least not in our fans' eye views. If we do lose a couple fans during it, I'm sure if they're true pro wrestling fans, they will come back or we will find a new way to entertain them to create new fans. So everybody's pretty much, you know, still just kind of going, you know, full steam ahead, 110%, you know, and, and everything, you know, everybody's still, you know, still keep going, basically. You know, they're not... Yeah, they yeah, the business, the business will always survive, you know. People always say, you know, God forbid what would happen if Vince McMahon dies, you know. The yeah. gears are in motion. The, the business will survive without anyone involved, any one person or any one group of people are, are not bigger than the business. It'll always survive as long as there's an audience for there and proven throughout the course of time from carnival days till today's huge dome shows, you know, there is an audience for it. As long as there's an audience for it, there will be a product. Well, Sean, with you being kind of stuck in the mix as a mid Carter on Raw and as a Cruiserweight on SmackDown, what's your take on how the talent's treated by Vince and the creative team? Um, I, I, can't, I can't speak for other people. I can just speak for myself. I know from the position I was in the, in the company, I never felt that I was belittled or treated better or worse than anybody. I have seen some people, you know, top people in the company treat a little better, you know, but, but for obvious reasons. You know, obviously a main event guy, you're going to want to take care of them and keep them happy, but I was never, I would never say I was treated poorly for, for what I attributed to the company. I thought I was treated just fine. You know, I, I never felt like I was belittled or put below anybody, and that goes from the guy that sets up to the ring to, to the undertaker. You know, I, I never felt like that anyone in, from in between all the way on top or all the way on bottom treated me any different than any other human being. Right. Well, I mean, obviously there's got to be some kind of, you know, distinguished difference between main eventers, you know, mid-card and low-card. I mean, that's why you have the three different levels. But don't you think, I mean, you know, just this could obviously could be your opinion, do you think there's really, you know, some true money to be made in, let's say, the cruiserweight, you know, area or the tag team area? I mean, don't, wouldn't you say that, that there could be money made and there could be better stories told from a creative standpoint? Oh, oh definitely, definitely. That's, that's like no question about it. Um, as far as that's concerned, the best way that I've been describing it to people, and this is my take on it, and I really don't know what it takes to fix it, but right. this on a given week, WWE has to create five original hours of programming. On a pay-per-view week, they have to do eight hours of programming. Obviously, you need to take care of your main events first, and then you work the segment below it, segment below it, segment below it. So if you have seven days to come up with the main event for Raw, then you got to worry about the main event for ECW, and then you got to work for the main event of SmackDown, then you go back to Raw and do the segment underneath the main event, go to ECW, do the segment underneath, go to SmackDown, do the segment underneath, and by the time you get to Raw, it's already Sunday, and you got to fly out and start producing TV for Monday night. They're, they're in, there aren't enough hours in a day to produce five to eight hours of original TV a week and give 100% thought to the first segment on the show and the last segment of the show. There just isn't enough time. And when you look at shows in, say, the year 1998, 1999, when all they had to produce was two original hours of programming a week, that gives you seven days to think about the opening match and the last match. Right. Um, does, does it surprise you right now that, that ratings have kind of been down from, from what they were, let's say, you know, two to three months ago, where they were kind of in the fours, and now we're talking, you know, mid to lower threes and even a, a 2.8 last week? Does that surprise you at all, or...? Uh, no, I mean, I think it just it, think it shows the uh, quality of the product at the given time compared to what else is on TV. You look at some huge, huge shows where probably one of the best T 
TV seasons, like take, take Heroes, for example, right. going Heroes head-to-head on NBC, which is on broadcast television, and the writing on that show or just the quality of that show is incredible. You know, right. there's no way WWE can compare to that, or, or wrestling product, for that matter, can compare to that. That's something that I think one of the next big changes in time is going to be we're no longer competing with, you know, WCW and WWE on the Monday night. Now you're competing WWE with everything else. And once they kind of fine-tune that formula and get it right, then I think they can be off to the races. But right now you're comparing wrestling to wrestling. On a, they're writing a wrestling show, and right now the people watching TV on Monday nights aren't typically just wrestling fans. So you got to figure out what it takes to turn them away from heroes or turn them away from ESPN football or turn them away from whatever they're watching on that given night. Right, right. And, and sticking with the topic of ratings, we actually have a, a listener question. Uh, Steve A. from Texas writes, uh, he, he was wondering if you feel that, that WWE is rushing back uh, guys like HBK early because of the rating decline and how that, affect, how that, has, affect, how that has affects the uh, talent and locker room morale. Um, I, can't, I can't speak, like I said, for other people. I right. don't know. I would see, um, you know, when Sean came back, I sat down and I talked to him and, you know, he said that he, you know, he was called back obviously a little early than planned, but not early against that. You know, it was anything against his health. And I think, you know, in that situation, he's more than happy to do it. John Cena was a major, major player in our company, and when he got injured, there were big, big shoes to fill. And I think Sean's going to do an excellent job filling it in as a top babyface in the company. That's something that you know shows the type of type of person he is that he'd be willing to do that. For the company, I'm sure if he if he wanted to, he could have sat out as originally as long as he wanted or as long as he he felt like he wanted to stay home. But that's the kind of team player some of the guys are. That you know he he felt like he'd come back early, and I don't think it was come back early like physically ready. I think from a creative standpoint, you know, you just wait for the people that are begging for him to come back. You know, maybe they could have really bigly, hugely advertised. You know, Sean's return at this pay per view. You know, to get people to pay forty five dollars to see it. But, you know, to show that, that I think that's a sign of a good team player that, you know, he saw somebody step down and he's ready to step up and, and carry the weight of that company. Absolutely. Well, to wrap up your experience in the WWE, Sean, we actually have another listener's uh, question from Amber in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She wants to know basically what was your best part of being in the WWE and what was your worst part? Um, hands down, like no question about it, the best part would be working with Hulk Hogan kind of like in his, in his big return swan song deal. That was like, you know, to this day it was still surreal um, to be able to have someone that huge that kind of, you know, supersedes the business a little bit, almost like a household name to come back and, and you know, to have. It's not only the fact that you get to work with him from, from a fan's point of view, me being a huge Hulk Hogan fan, but also from uh, an office point of view where it's like, wow, the office had that much faith in our ability at that time that we were the guys that they were going to put him with. They could have put him with anybody they wanted to, and WWE felt that we were the best guys for that role. So from a professional point of view and from a personal, that was just unbelievable. And then um, probably a low point in my career was a couple times, you know, not too often, but a handful of times that I went to work at SmackDown. I was flown out and ready to do the show, and I'd show up there, and they'd say, you know, you're not on the show tonight. That was something really heartbreaking to kind of show up to, to you know, a job I love to do. I love wrestling. That's something I like more than Anything else in the world is I love to go out there and entertain people. And to be there, have the audience, have the ring, and the ability to do that, and then just find out 
they got nothing for you, and then I have to sit in the back and watch all my friends do what I love to do. That that was a real big kick in the ball sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, Steve, Steve, we have Steve, uh, uh, another listener question know, uh, uh, from another Steve in Texas. He says, Devari, you are a good wrestler, and I wish you the best in your future goals. Will you tell us who you trained with? Your wrestling style looks familiar, but I can't quite place it. Uh, who I trained with, you know, I originally broke in and learned to wrestle from a guy named Eddie Sharkey in Minneapolis, and pretty much anyone who's from the Minnesota area has been through Eddie Sharkey. He trained Jesse Ventura. He trained Hawk and Animal, the Road Warriors. He trained Rick Rude. You know, all the Minnesota guys, Barry Darso, they all went through uh, Eddie Sharkey, and that's who I first started with. And then um, I'd say from there it was just kind of like, you know, get input from anyone I could. Dr. Tom Pritchard had a huge input in my career you know i would talk to him on a semi-regular basis and try and see him around the country wherever i could and he'd always fine-tune a lot of my stuff Sheik adnan al casey who used to wrestle in the awa for verangana and then later on as general adnan with sergeant slaughter in the wwe um he gave me a lot of pointers especially on kind of the middle eastern gimmick or middle eastern character about how to portray that a little bit better um a whole bunch of people you know me and uh ken anderson who now works as ken kennedy and WWE used to travel around the world, you know, wrestling each other everywhere we could, from Minnesota to Tennessee to Boston. We would just the two of us drive around the country and wrestle for 20 bucks and a hot dog just to just to get the opportunity. I think we grew together, um, you know, just working each other every single night in different parts of the country with different people, getting different people's input. I think you know that's why from the group of guys we uh, we wrestled with, we were really the only two to break out. You and uh, Anderson actually worked a match in TNA back in 2003, didn't you? Yeah, we actually uh, tagged in TNA together. Um, I can't remember who we wrestled, but like I said, we would we would wrestle all over the country, wherever we could get a chance, wherever people would want to book us. You know, we would hop into my car or his car and drive and go. And that was really how we both kind of got our names out there. And like I said, from the crew of guys that we broke into all around the same time, we were really the only two that did anything major with the exception of like Austin Aries if you know who he is he's kind of a really really big deal in Ring of Honor he's a former Ring of Honor champion he had a little stint in TNA but I mean he's another one that's working around the world he works all over the country Japan you know he's really getting his name out there and that's something he done on his own he never had any WWE or huge TV exposure he made a name for himself because he was the same as us we would drive all over the place to get as much experience as much ability and have as many eyeballs on us as possible yeah, well, as you dabbled in TNA and ROH for a brief period of time for each company, Mark from Illinois wants to know, is there any chance of seeing you in TNA or ROH anytime uh, in the near future? Yeah, I mean, I mean anything's possible. Like, I, I'm, you know, the top of my title reads professional wrestler. It doesn't say WWE superstar, TNA superstar, New Japan pro wrestling, you know. It doesn't say anything specific. Whoever wants me is, you know, the place that I'll be able to go and work. And... TNA is definitely on my radar in the future, as is Ring of Honor. You know, it all depends on if we can get something figured out and if it's feasible for that company to bring me in and it makes sense in some place they could use me that will, you know, be beneficial to myself and the company as well. Now, I know that, um, you know, obviously, you, as in WWE, you know, you, you guys are, are traveling constantly and very busy. Uh, do you ever have time to, to keep up with, uh, with the current products for TNA and or ROH? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm as big a wrestling fan as you're going to find. I watch everything. I, uh, you know, my TiVo records TNA every week, even when I was with WWE. Uh, depending on what show was on, if I was on Raw, I'd still record 
ECW and SmackDown. I watch it every week. If I was on ECW, I'd record SmackDown and Raw and vice versa. I watched all of WWE's products. Um, I would get Ring of Honor tapes here and there sent to me or DVDs sent to me. You know, if I could ever find some Mexican wrestling on Gala Vision, I would watch that. I, I read internet results about what's going on in Japan and periodically get Japanese wrestling tapes. I'm pretty much abreast of everything professional wrestling that's going on in the world, and I've always kept up with it because it interests me because I knew that was something that I would be doing in my career. I'm, I'm only 23 years old. I've already been in WWE for about four years. I'm pretty mm. sure I'm going to be able to invest a lot of time in every territory that's really still available in the country and possibly even come back to WWE before I'm 30. So that's something that I kept up with as a fan you know, I, throughout my whole career. You are pretty young. I'm, I'm 25, man. You're making me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, o- over to TNA real quick. Uh, you know, earlier or late last year, you know, they, they started kind of, you know, if you want to call it firing shots at WWE with the whole VKM, you know, taking shots at DX and Cena. Is, is there ever any kind of chatter going on backstage about TNA? I mean, is it ever brought up, you know, the boys talking about TNA? Or, you know, are they even on the radar as far as WWE is concerned, in your opinion? Um, I mean, in between the boys, yeah, I don't know about the office, but in between the boys, of course, because a lot of them, you know, the boys are kind of a, a tight-knit family of, of friends that, you know, work everywhere and with each other several, several times throughout uh, throughout your career. So it's like, you know, I can't think of any, let's say Christian, for example. Me and Christian became very good friends in WWE. You know, Rhino, for that example, as well. And, and you know, now they work in TNA, so I got some friends over there, and then, you know, like I said, Austin Aries was a good guy I was friends with before I started wrestling, and he works in Ring of Honor now. And, you know, now let's just say me and Ken Kennedy are good examples, you know, we're good friends. So uh, maybe if I end up in TNA or if I go to Japan, I'm sure he would bring my name up saying, hey, my buddy Davari's doing this or that. You know, the people, we're all friends, and we're, you know, constantly networking. So I don't think it's so much at a professional point of view with, like, oh, my God, TNA did that last night, or, oh, my God, this happened in New Japan this weekend. It was just, I think it's more of a, a personal or a friendship thing where it's like, hey, my buddy's doing this, or hey, some guy I know is doing that. All right, and, and one kind of last question about TNA for the moment. It, it, of course, in your opinion, do you, you think they're getting close to becoming real competition? Uh, well, I, I can't say, like, I don't think they're becoming close right now in 2007 or 2008. Right. But if you look at from where they started to where they are today, they've been moving forward, and very rapidly moving forward every single year. So I don't see 2007 or 2008 being the year that they're in com- competition with WWE, but definitely it is on the radar where at some point in time with the rate they've been moving forward, they're bound to catch up and beca- bound to become good competition, and it's only going to be better for everybody. It's yeah. only going to be better for for the world because you look at when wrestling was its hottest, there was two people battling head-to-head, and the winners were the talent and the fans. I, I really don't see a loser in it. The talent was making more money than ever, drawing bigger houses than ever, and the fans got the best product they've ever been exposed to at that given time. Absolutely. So it's a great thing to happen. I almost bet you on some level Vince McMahon wants it to happen too because then that gives him something to compete with. He has no competition right now. His, his competition is last week's show. That's hard to do. It's very hard to compete with yourself. If you have someone else on the board that you're competing head-to-head with, then you can strategize. Then you can see what works, what doesn't. Then you can see, hey, they got this guy. I bet you I can do this with him. Or, hey, we can lose that guy, but I don't have to worry about him losing his house because there's another place for him to work. Right. Well, going back to your run with Muhammad Hassan in the WWE when you first came in, whose idea was that? 
Um, I, I really don't know where it all came from. I've heard a couple things. One, someone told me that was Jim Cornette's idea. Someone told me it was Vince's idea, and he told Jim Cornette to find me the guys. Um, I was already doing the same gimmick, you know, pretty much the Devar Hassan gimmick was what I was doing on the independence. And uh, when I think once they decided that, hey, we want to do this Middle Eastern character gimmick, and they already knew that I was out there on the indies, they signed me and, and made it a package deal. I don't know if it was ever intended to be a singles wrestler, a tag team, or a singles with or without a manager. I think it was just like we need, the, you know, the time is right now for a Middle Eastern heel. And when they saw I was already doing it, and I, I really think it was when I came into OVW and they're like, holy shit, you and, and uh, the guy that ended up playing Muhammad Hassan look really, really, really similar. That was when it kind of all, all came together. And then I think Jim Cornette put it together as a package down there, presented it to Vince, and Vince loved it. Right. Well, what were your thoughts on the actual Muhammad Hassan character? Did you approve of it? Oh yeah, it was great. I thought I thought they did it, you know, better than I was doing it. When I was doing it on the independence, I was just this Middle Eastern heel that you know hated America, like has always been done, has been done for the last you know thirty years in the business. I, I thought the twist that WWE put on it was great. Was that you know we were these two guys that were born in America and we loved the United States until 9/11. After 9/11, people started treating us like dog shit, and I was like, man, that that's actually. A true case that was with me. You know, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Minneapolis, and I never really felt like a minority until after 9/11. I always felt just like a, you know, obviously I wasn't white, but I felt just like a normal white guy. I never had to deal with any racism or discrimination that black people or Mexicans or Asians ever had to deal with. But after 9/11, I sure did. And then, then that's something that I was like, wow, that that is something that could turn someone extremely, extremely bitter and have them be pissed off at the world. So he kind of gave the gimmick some justification. I thought it was excellent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely think it was definitely intriguing. I'll say that. Now, you know, just just for the people that may have been offended by it, did you ever think that it ever went too far at any point? Like, just a, a prime example with the beheading gesture, you know, when he would go for the finisher. Did you ever at any point think that it ever went too far? No, I don't think so because I've met, I mean, I can't say that I met everybody, but I think I met enough of our fans and enough Middle Eastern fans that all said they loved it. You know, I never I never have come across anyone, and not saying they're not out there, but I've never come across someone that specifically said that they were offended by it in the same manner that, you know, you're going to find someone that's offended by everything. You're going to find some girl that was forced to give a guy a blowjob against her will that hates the DX suck it thing. You know, someone's going to be offended by something everywhere. But as far as mass appeal, I don't think anyone was too bothered by it. And for the most part, I think the fans were in on it. You know, those fans would tell us how much they hate us and want to kill us. And as soon as they see us outside the building, they were begging for a photo and an autograph. You know, it's kind of like some people, what appears when the cameras are on, the audience is working just as much as we are. I've seen people with, you know, threatened death to Shawn Michaels uh, in Montreal or in Canada inside the arena, and as soon as they see him in the lobby of his hotel, they would give their left arm for an autograph and a picture. So I think for the most part today our fans are pretty smart to what we're doing. And, and real quick, I just want to plug our, our number in case any of you have a question for Davari. The number is uh, 646-478-4596. And, uh, Still staying on topic, did, did you or Mark ever receive any kind of death threats or anything like that? Oh, nothing. I mean, I've never seen anything. There might have been a, a guy we pissed off here or there because we didn't have time to sign autographs because we had to run to the gate to catch our flight before it took off, and they might say, you know, you suck, I hate you, but I've never seen any sort of 
genuine uh, disgust or any sort of ill ill feelings. Like genuinely, I don't think I've ever seen any. And, and that goes for any heel in the company. Like I said, for the most part, I think our fans are smart to what we're doing, and they appreciate our effort as much as they appreciate giving us shit when you know you're a bad guy or a good guy or whatever the case may be. Right now, as far as uh, Mark Capani, do you still uh, stay in contact with him at all? Yeah, we talk on a you know I'd say almost weekly, semi-weekly basis. Oh wow, so you guys are are pretty close then. Yeah, I mean you can't work with someone and do the type of business we did and travel together for as long as we did and not become close. You know, there was a point in time where, you know, I was seeing him more than my own legitimate brother. So it's like you know during that time we've become really close. I've had some personal problems in my life that he's helped me with. He's had personal problems in his life that I've helped him deal with. Once you cross that from, you know, the professional to personal side of life with the amount of time you spend together, seeing each other every day, it's almost impossible to not become close. Yeah. Well, Sean, we actually have a call for you from area code 952. You're on the shoot. Hey, this is your uh, buddy from the Daily Suplex, Big Luther, guys. Hey, what's up, Big Luther? Not too much. How are you guys doing? All right. You got a question for uh, for Davari? I do have a question for Davari. Uh, you were used more as as a mouthpiece than anything in WWE. Were you ever upset that you didn't get more wrestling time? No, it was, it was never something. I mean, you know, obviously in the bottom of my heart, I wanted to wrestle more than anything. But in that company specifically, um, you can you can do a lot for the fans without actually stepping in the ring. And a perfect example of that is is Vince McMahon. Vince is probably just as strong a character on that show as anybody, and he barely ever has matches. And, like, if you are to compare the two, Val Venus wrestles every single night, and Vince wrestles once every six months maybe. But if you ask our audience, you know, who's someone that they can invest emotionally in or who's someone that they really can care about as a character on the show, not saying they don't care about Val Venus, but because Vince McMahon is able to be on that program so much in such intriguing, um, entertaining storylines, they can invest emotionally in that as much as, as much as they can, um, you know, a professional wrestler. And also, in some aspects, I thought a lot of it was a compliment. You know, when I was, you know, obviously the office felt that I had so much heat that, you know, in in three separate scenarios they were using me to help a main event guy, and that was something that kind of blew me away. Like uh, with Kurt Angle, he was, you know, getting so popular with the fans, even though he was portraying the bad guy, that you know, WWE office felt they should put me with Kurt Angle to keep him a bad guy so the people don't start cheering him. And same thing with Mark Henry. They wanted to bring in Mark Henry and have him be like the next big thing on SmackDown. And they said, how some way we can get this guy rolling right away, put Dwari with him. And that's another huge compliment. They want to build up a main event guy, so they put me with him. Same thing with Kali. Kali comes in like, we need to get this guy a shitload of heat right away to get him ready for the main event. What do we do? Put him with Dwari. I mean, that's in my eyes, from a, a business standpoint, that's a huge compliment that, that, you know, Vince believes I have that much heat behind me that he's using me to establish his main event guys. That was that was almost, you know, better than anything I could have done in the ring. Well, thanks for the call, Luther, and we're going to move on to area code 816. You're live with Devari. Hey, guys, this is Gray Wolf from Weekly Recap. Uh, Devari, my question to you is that I've noticed before you left you had a lot of workage with Cody Rhodes. How was he like? Cody's awesome. You know, he was someone that's up and coming in the company, and, um, you know, that that was something that I kind of fell into as uh, I felt my role uh, within the company at that given point in time was to get 
new guys kind of off and ready to the races. That that's another big thing that you know, from a professional standpoint, that, that was kind of a huge compliment from the office. I had Cody's first even dark match ever in WWE that a lot of people haven't seen, or even on the house shows. They're kind of like. We need to get this guy ready for TV, you know, relatively quick. What can we do? And, and that was what they did is they put him with me. They felt, you know, the office was that confident in my talent and my ability. They thought that I was good enough to get someone ready from developmental to the big times. That's something professionally to me is, is a compliment, saying that they have that much trust and ability or trust in my talent and ability to get someone ready for the big times. Okay. All right, thank you, Gray Wolf, for your call. Hey, uh, one more question, uh, uh, Sean, before we go. Uh, I was noticing on Raw a couple of weeks, and, and this kind of goes into, you know, I, I've seen a lot of, in my opinion, you know, issues with Raw. Uh, what, what was your opinion when they kind of just threw you out there in a flag match with Hacksaw Jim Duggan? It seemed like it had no build, and, and here's a gimmick match just kind of just thrown out there. And I think you were already in the ring, and then they came back from break, and here comes Hacksaw. Yeah, what was your opinion of that? Um, the flag match was something cool. I, I enjoyed doing it, and, and you're absolutely right. Like, I even I even asked creative about it and said, why are we doing this gimmick match without any build or any, any anything going into it? It seemed kind of backwards that, you know, you're starting with a gimmick match instead of ending with one. And I really couldn't get a straight answer, and just the more and more I thought about it, the only thing that kind of made sense for me, and I have no idea if this is the case or not, but... I was thinking that show happened to be in Nashville, and I don't know if they felt that since the TNA audience that you know might have been there has seen so many crazy gimmick matches in, in TNA that they just wanted to throw them a bone and give them one. That's maybe some crazy conspiracy theory. I don't know. But it did really seem ass backwards to me, especially when the next week you know, I wasn't on the show and neither was Hacksaw. So to answer your question, I really don't know, and I tried to get some answers for it, and even the people a couple steps above me didn't have an answer for me. So, you know, I guess that's one of those things that we'll never know. I just hope that we did the best we could and people were entertained by it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sean, I really want to thank you for taking the time out with us and answering listener questions and taking some calls and and giving us some thoughts on your time at WWE, and I hope that we can uh, definitely uh, get in touch with you soon. Um, I just want to say real quick again, if you guys are interested in booking Davari, speaking as far as independent promoters, you can reach him at bookdavari at uh, hotmail.com and, and reach him on his official website at seandavari.com. And, and, Sean, thank you so much, man. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you guys very much. I just want to let anyone listening or anyone out there know that, you know, I unfortunately at this point in my time I felt it was necessary for me to move on from WWE, but that doesn't mean at all that I'm done with wrestling. I'll still be around. I'm sure you'll see my face on TV, pay-per-view, anywhere, live events relatively soon. Yeah, I'd definitely like to see you in, in TNA. I, I thought they probably would, would utilize you a little better, I think. So hopefully yeah, we can see you soon, buddy. Hopefully. All right, man. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Have a good one. Thanks, Sean.